Welcome in to the 48 Minutes Podcast on Believe, presented by Bet Online. I'm Ross Geiger, joined alongside Bruce Bernstein of Pure Hoops Media and World B, Michael Freer. This is episode number 60, the James Williams episode, as Mr. Williams has officiated 693 regular season games throughout his 12 seasons as an NBA referee. Williams has always worked 45 playoff games, which included three NBA Finals games. And originally from the Memphis area, Williams now resides in Chicago and hopes to one day run for mayor. How cool is that, fellas? Mr. Williams has a plan for after uh, his officiating days. So best of luck to you, Mr. Williams. And uh, before we move on, just want to remind everybody, Bet Online is your number one source for all your betting needs. Get the latest odds, lines, and the latest matchup reports for baseball, boxing, golf, and more. Bet Online continues to be the fastest and easiest way to place your wagers, including live betting and your favorite casino and card games, available to play right from your phone. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and get in on the action. Remember to use promo code BLEAV, that is B-L-E-A-V, for your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. And tonight, Bruce, we're going to start with you for opening tip. Thanks, Ross. Anthony Davis is living his best life in Los Angeles. He's got two years left on his contract for a total of more than $83 million, which will take him through the 24-25 season. Then last week, he signed an extension with the Lakers for three years and $186 million that runs through the 2028-2029 season. AD's eventual $62 million average salary will be the highest in in the NBA, although Jason Tatum might eclipse him on his next deal. He'll be 36 years old during the final season of his deal. So with an average salary of just under $54 million for the next five seasons, it's worth noting that in his past five seasons, he's missed approximately one-third of his team's games. If he continues that pace, he'll make around $1 million per game played. <laughs> AD is always the best or the second best player on the court at any given time. But the old cliche, the best ability is availability, definitely applies to him. You can't blame the Lakers for locking him up long-term, even though he has frequently been injured. And although LeBron James seems ageless and shows few signs of decline, the King will turn 39 years old in December and be playing in his 21st season. So the future alpha of the Lakers is clearly 30-year-old AD. As a fan, I wish him the best of health, and hopefully he can be the rare athlete who gets healthier and stronger as he ages, because it usually is the other way around. I would agree with you there, Bruce. And uh, we've talked about it, though. When Anthony Davis is healthy and playing at his uh, A game, he's one of the best players in the league, an MVP candidate. And certainly uh, basketball is a lot more fun when AD is healthy. But I have a feeling at the end of that contract, he's going to be looking like Kevin Willis out there at age 36. <laughs> world B, what do you have for opening tip? Uh, thank you, Ross. You know, when the World Cup begins, the FIBA World Cup begins at the end of this month, many eyes will be on Team USA as well as countries like defending World Cup champions Spain and France. But as you watch this event, which should be very competitive this year, pay attention to those NBA players that are participating and keep them in your memory bank when the NBA season begins in late October. Because just like during the Olympic years, this is a tournament where players will be going all out to come away with a championship that many players put on par with winning the NBA title. 
However, along with crossing my fingers that no one will get hurt at this tournament, because as a baseball fan, I'm still not over the Mets losing their closer, Edwin Diaz, during the World Baseball Classic last spring, I will be paying attention to see how many players will be able to handle the load of an ultra-competitive event like this uh, World Cup before the grind of an NBA season. If your favorite NBA team has a player or two participating in this event, as my Knicks have, it's not out of line to question how these players will perform at the gate when the season begins or how long it will take before they get back into the groove of the season. Load management is an issue that the NBA is trying to address, but with issue with events like this one going on, there is no doubt that any solutions to the load management problem probably will have to be addressed at a later date. Well said there will be, and yeah, we'll definitely have to keep an eye on all these guys participating and, uh, I'm curious to see the preseason minutes because I feel like these guys might just sit out all of preseason to kind of rest up and ramp up for the regular season action. As for my opening tip, last Thursday, Diana Tarazi made history becoming the first WNBA player to reach the 10,000-point milestone while on her way to 42 points on the night and a home victory over the Atlanta Dream. If you didn't have Tarazi as your WNBA GOAT prior to reaching this 10K milestone, you sure should now. The three-time WNBA champ, 2009 MVP, two-time finals MVP, and 10-time All-Star just continues to dazzle on the court for the Phoenix Mercury at age 41. Having worked for the Phoenix Suns coaching staffs in 2014 and 2015, I had the great pleasure of assisting the Mercury from time to time in practices. Well, I have nothing but great things to say about Diana as a person off the court, as she oftentimes included me in playoff clinching celebrations and in team huddles in the locker room. I must admit, I had zero fun trying to guard her during in-practice scrimmages. She used to absolutely light me up. Both Diana's mentality and personality reminds me so much of what we all enjoyed and cherished about the late, great Kobe Bryant. She quite simply is that special, and I couldn't be happier to see her get to the untouched 10K scoring mark in the WNBA history book. So a big congratulations goes out to her for yet another incredible achievement in her legendary playing career. Congrats, Diana. And with that, let's go ahead and get to our first half and um, kind of along the lines of a goat like Diana Taurasi. Let's talk about the Hall of Fame inductions that are going to take place this Saturday. Uh, But before we get to the five legendary NBA names that we want to discuss in greater detail, let's shed some light on some of the other notable names that are being honored, Bruce. Thanks a lot, Ross. You know, some of these names might be slightly familiar. Some of them, even hoop heads like us probably never heard of, but all of them uh, have achieved greatness in the sport at various levels. So the North American committee inductees, uh, not including the NBA stars, are Gene Bess, the all-time winningest college coach and a two-time NJCAA Junior College Coach of the Year. Uh, David Hickson, 826 wins, two-time Division Three National Champion, two-time Division Three Coach of the Year. Gene Cady, the great Purdue coach, six-time NCAA Coach of the Year, which I was shocked that he won that actually six times, although he is and was a great coach. And he took uh, his team to 17 NCAA tournaments. Uh, The Women's Committee inductees, Gary Blair, 852 wins, 2011 national champion, two-time Final Four participant, 
and Becky Hammond, speaking of great WNBA players, yep. six-time WNBA All-Star, two-time first-team All-WNBA recipient. In the direct elect committee inductees, in uh, uh, the 1976 women's Olympic basketball team uh, gets in. That team won the silver medal in the very first appearance for women's basketball in the Olympics. Uh, both Nancy Lieberman and um, your colleague there in Phoenix, Annie Myers Drysdale, who was just Annie Myers at the time, uh, were the leaders on that team. And of course, the great Jim Valvano gets in as a contributor, 1983 NCAA champion, created the V Foundation, and gave our generation's version of the Lou Gehrig, I'm the luckiest man on the face of the earth speech at the 1993 ESPY Awards, which I was actually there. Uh, the Kurt Gowdy Media Award winners, our friend, friend of the show, Mark Spears of Anscape and ESPN. Mark uh, appeared on this show uh, about a month or so ago and told us at some point he will come back and let us know what it's like hobnobbing with the likes of uh, the, the NBA stars we're going to mention in a couple minutes here. And his colleague at ESPN, Holly Rowe, uh, who's done a great job on uh, women's basketball coverage for many, many years, great sideline reporter, cancer survivor, courageous lady. Uh, she is the electronic media winner. And CBS Sports picks up the Transformative Media Award uh, and is inducted. Finally, the John Bunn Lifetime Achievement Award winner goes to Tom Konchalski, who was a longtime scout, scouted a lot of high school players, many of whom ended up in the NBA. He passed away a couple years ago, uh, and uh, Tom Konchalski gets in. So those are the uh, names of the non-NBA inductees. And now I think we're going to talk about some of the people you know a little bit better. Yeah, let's do it. And I'm going to start with you, World B. I know that you're located in the state of Florida. So we'll we'll go with a guy that played most of his career there. And that is Dwayne Wade, the Marquette uh, alum. Uh, talk a little bit about Dwayne Wade. What do you remember about Flash? Uh, a really, uh, really terrific scorer uh, overall, over 23,000 points, over 20 points per game for his career. A uh, terrific all-around player, you know. During his during his time, when I look at all Hall of Famers in any sport, I look at it as: Did you dominate your position for an extended period of time? And during Dwayne Wade's 16-year career, I mean, he was uh, in a handful of of uh, great two guards. He just, you know, 13-time All-Star, four-time uh, or three-time NBA champion. Excuse me. Uh, you know, just a terrific all-around player and you know he has every accolade you could probably want to have uh all nba selections all defensive selections finals mvp all-star game mvp member of the redeem team i mean you know he's the greatest player in the history of the miami heat too so there's just all the accolades are there for a guy he was we knew for a long time it's just a matter of when for a guy like Dwayne wade and he's you know, and the member of the NBA's seventy uh, fifth anniversary team. You can't do much better than that. He is the king of Miami basketball. Uh, he played fifteen seasons out of his sixteen in the league uh, with the Heat. As you mentioned, a thirteen time All Star. He was the, the the driving force behind their first NBA championship in two thousand and six. He was the Finals MVP. He and Shaq were the leaders of uh, that team. But Wade. In fact, he got the nickname Flash from Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, he's the Heat franchise leader 
in games, points, assists, steals, field goals made, and field goals attempted. Uh, you mentioned the Redeem team in 2008. He was the leading scorer on the Redeem team in 2000. So he was the star of stars on one of the most uh, beloved uh, USA Olympic teams ever. Um, like fellow inductee Tony Parker, who we're going to be getting to in a bit, Wade married an actress, Gabrielle yeah. Union. Uh, they've been married since 2014. He's also crushed over into the pop culture world. He hosts a TV show called The Cube on TBS. He's been featured in GQ Magazine, People Magazine, does a lot of philanthropic work in South Florida and his native Chicago. And he's been an endorsement machine over the years. Deals with Gatorade, Lincoln, Staples, Sean John, Y-Mobile, and Tops. He had a signature shoe with Converse and another with the Jordan brand at Nike. So Dwayne Wade has done every possible thing you can do from A to Z in the world of basketball. And what I love and respect most about D Wade is the fact that, as you mentioned, Bruce, he is a native of Chicago, wasn't heavily recruited out of high school, went to Marquette. Obviously, Marquette's got a great reputation for basketball, but it's not a Kentucky. It's not a Duke, one of the top tier teams in the country. We'll all admit that at Marquette. But this guy just grinded for everything he had, and he's made the most of not just his career, but overall his life. You mentioned all the accolades uh, and endorsements that he has. He's staying involved in the game now as a part owner of the Utah Jazz. I mean, it's just an incredible start story from start to finish for this guy, and I couldn't be happier uh, for Dwayne to be uh, amongst this group, especially as we talk about some of the international guys. I mean, we got a lot of guys that played with a chip on their shoulder. Dwayne Wade is definitely one of those guys. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of this this year's group because I think all of them had to prove their worth in the NBA and, and got to where they were with hard work. And uh, with that, let's get to our second guy here. Uh, Bruce, you teased him, and I'll let you start us off on Tony Parker. He is generally considered the greatest French basketball player of all time, but his background is a little bit more diverse than you might realize. His father, Tony Parker Sr., is an African-American who played pro ball in Europe. His mother is Dutch. He was born in Belgium and raised in France. UCLA and Georgia Tech both wanted him to come play college ball there, but he turned down college and played pro in France before being drafted by the Spurs with the 28th overall pick in 2001. He became the starting point guard early in his rookie year and spent the next 16 seasons in that role in San Antonio. Although Tim Duncan is the only Spurs player with five championship rings, Parker is next with four, including being named the 2007 NBA Finals MVP, the first European-born player to win the award. And it's interesting that he won Finals MVP one year after Dwayne Wade did for Miami. <laughs> so these two guys, you know, they're of the same kind of era. Uh, I could talk a little bit more about it, but one of the things I most remember about watching this guy play was he was unbelievable at breaking down defenses and getting into the paint. He scored a ton of points in the paint. In fact, I think one year he actually led the NBA in points in the paint, which is remarkable for a player of his size. And even when he didn't score, he created incredible open looks for his teammates. Bruce Bowen should be paying him all kinds of tributes because of all those open corner threes that Tony got for him. Will be. Yeah, he's one of the greatest uh, international uh, point guards. I mean, him and Steve Nash, I would suppose, are really when you look at the list of the greatest uh, point guards uh, to come in from international play, it would be those two, I guess, uh, Steve Nash being from Canada. Uh, yeah, he was uh, – 
one of my memories was I got to watch him play every game, his final season in the NBA with the Charlotte Hornets when he was really a backup. And he was really a productive player in a backup role, an occasional starter at that point. And I was really surprised when he uh, did not, you know, that was his final season. He retired because he still had plenty of game life. He wasn't the same player as he was in 2007 when he was winning the finals MVP. But he was still more than uh, productive. And he wasn't just some guy they you bring off the bench. I remember Walt Frazier, Walt Clyde Frazier's final season with the Cavaliers. That was depressing to watch as a Knicks fan to see that. This was not that kind of player. He was still a quality player to the very end. And so I, I remember that. And I remember how much he improved after winning the finals MVP, how his career took off from that point. You know, he made uh, all NBA a couple of times, uh, I think four times, uh, second team, a couple of those uh, occasions. So he was definitely one of the top point guards of his era and really a de- one of the key members of the Spurs dynasty during this time. So, you know, there's only about, you know, when you look at the Spurs history of the Spurs, he's probably their point guard and their all time team. Absolutely. And for me, I don't have a lot of fond memories of Tony Parker growing up a Suns fan and watching him, you know, <laughs> dismantle us every year in game six, game seven. But on a serious note here, as far as Tony Parker's concerned, Bruce, you already alluded to it, you know, leading the league in the paint points in the paint. I mean, that, that just goes right back and translates to toughness. I mean, as a guard to lead the league in points in the paint, you got to be extremely tough. I mean, you're not, you're not going in the lane shooting floaters at an efficient enough level to, to lead the league in, in scoring. And that's what I remember most. I mean, this guy would challenge anybody in the paint using his body, very crafty, not afraid of the contact. You know, I'm one that would totally tell you that I think a lot of French players are finesse players for those that listened to last, <laughs> last uh, week's show there. But Tony, Tony Parker is not one of those guys. I mean, he was gritty. He was tough. And, uh, I mean, he was a huge piece to that puzzle in San Antonio and why it worked for so long and uh, couldn't be happy for him. It, it's funny, as a Suns fan, you know, see him going to the Hall of Fame now, I can finally root for him and actually, like, celebrate his career. I couldn't really do that up until this point. But the Hall of Fame is kind of the, the time where you can step back and actually applaud all these players for their efforts. So, with that, we're going to get to another guy I don't have – many fond memories of as well. And that is Pau Gasol will be. Yeah. Well, again, we're, you know, this is a uh, international theme, but he is uh, arguably one of the greatest uh, international, your European big men to ever come over and uh, play in the NBA. He is, you know, he was an all-star before he got to be a Laker, but he is defined by his time with the Lakers and Kobe and Phil and that era of, of uh, the Lakers. And, but it, you know, it's worth knowing he was an all-star before he got there with the Memphis Grizzlies. He was a, a terrific player. Then it's just that being with a player like Kobe Bryant, being coached by a Phil Jackson, his career just elevated uh, to this hall of fame status, but he's you know a terrific, uh, terrific all around player. I mean, for a big guy to, Average almost, you know, 17, almost over nine boards a game in his career, over, you know, one and a half blocks per game, shot over 50% from the field, you know, over 20,000 points and over 10,000 rebounds. That's a Hall of Fame career in, in most uh, most books. And, you know, he, he absolutely is one of the uh, all-time greats. 
Bruce? All, all of the players going in this year uh, are NBA champions. Uh, you know, Powell has two of them. You know, Wade had three. Dirk has one. Parker had four. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, Pop has five as coach. Uh, but as you said, without question, one of the greatest international players of all time. First non-American player to win Rookie of the Year in 2002 with the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, two-time champion, as you mentioned, with the Lakers in 29 and 2010. 18 seasons, including two seasons in San Antonio with Pop and Tony Parker. And a fraction of a third, but really Parker was, uh, I think, gone when Powell began his third season with the team. Uh, he was never a stat machine, right? He only averaged 20 points or more twice in his career, but he was steady. He was consistent. Lifetime averages, 17 points, nine boards, all NBA four times, six-time All-Star. And let's share a little bit of what Kobe Bryant uh, said about him. Kobe said there would have been no championships in 2009, 2010 without Paul, without Paul. He said that he'd want Powell's retired Lakers jersey to hang next to his in the arena, formerly known as the Staples Center. And while Kobe didn't live to see it happen, back in March, when Powell's number 16 with the Lakers was retired, it was unveiled right next to Kobe's number eight and number 24. He was a multifaceted seven-foot player, very unique, had a variety of different shots that were that were great weapons, mid-range jumpers, hook shots, up and under moves. He was a great finisher on fast breaks. He had great footwork. He was a solid passer and shot blocker. Uh, Kobe once said you'd be hard-pressed to find a big with his skill set in the history of the game. He was also a legend in the international game as well. Um, two Olympic silver medals for Spain the FIBA World Championship in 2006, two Eurobasket Championships in 2009 and 2011. His younger brother, Mark, was also an NBA star, playing 13 season and winning Defensive Player of the Year in 13. And I'm going to end this long-winded rant with one additional thought. Here's something that most people either don't know or probably forgot because it happened so long ago. Mark Gasol and Pau Gasol were actually involved in a trade for each other. In February of 2008, Mark, whose draft rights were held by the Lakers, was traded along with three other players and two first-round picks to Memphis. In return, the Lakers received Powell and a second-round pick whose name doesn't even matter. <laughs> Glad you brought up that fun fact, Bruce. That is one that certainly should be noted here. You know, with the FIBA tournament uh, on the horizon here in the basketball world, I think the thing that really stood out to me with Powell Gasol was just his impact with that Spain team. And, you know, my favorite story coming from that involves Kobe Bryant in the Redeem Team documentary when they talk about, you know, Kobe having Powell over to his hotel room the night before the game and he was being all nice, things of that nature. Early in the first quarter, the game starts, Powell sets a screen and Kobe writes, Kobe runs right through him, just sending a message, hits, throws him on the deck you know, statement type thing. And that's really kind of what got Team USA going and on their their way to, you know, redeeming that gold medal. But Pau Gasol was a lot of the Team USA's fear and and being the leader of that that uh, Spain team. So um, that, that really stands out to me. And the other thing, too, we obviously know we've talked about Kobe a ton, but what I really appreciate and respect about Pau 
is how close he remains with the Bryant family after Kobe's passing. He has been heavily involved, very supportive, and uh, just goes to show you the relationship he has with that family and not just Kobe Bryant. And that that's really cool to see uh, moving forward here uh, in 2023. So, yeah, but, hey, hey, by the way, just one more quick thing. I you talked about his play for Spain during all these international competitions, where it was really—I mean, his love for playing. People who watched him play and watched that team play, the love, they, the desire they had to win for the country of Spain was really incredible. And it took when the Team USA in 2008 and going forward really recaptured that desire that teams like Spain had, led by Pau Gasol. That's when Team USA's success started coming back. So it was really following the lead of Pau Gasol and the rest of those guys in Spain, how much they, how much pride they took in playing for Spain, really uh, meant to you. You know, for USA, when they started getting that kind of mentality, is when you know their world got easier as far as success in international play. You know, here's another thing about Pau. Before he decided to play pro ball in Spain, he was actually considering going to medical school. I mean, he was actually that smart. And I know that during his NBA career, he befriended a number of doctors and actually would be uh, an observer in like operating rooms, watching them do surgery. So this guy was, you know, way more than just a ball player. I mean, he was an, you know, a, a, a major league intellect as well. Absolutely. And let's go ahead and uh, continue our Texas two-step here. We're going to move along to Dallas now. And that that is Dirk Nowinski headed to the Hall of Fame. Bruce, what do you remember best about Big Dirk? Well, if he's not the greatest international player ever, he's on the very, very, very short list, along with some of the other folks we just talked about. Uh, Native of Germany, over 31,000 regular season points, number six on the all-time list. The only players who scored more, LeBron, Kareem, Karl Malone, Kobe, and MJ. Dirk is number six. Wilt Chamberlain is number seven. Okay, so he is in the absolute upper echelon of the all greatest of the great. The only international player active with any chance of catching Dirk is uh, Ross's buddy, Giannis Antetokounmpo, who still needs more than 15,000 points to catch him. Dirk played all 21 seasons with the Mavs, was a 14-time All-Star, 12-time All-NBA player, uh, and um, regular season MVP in 2007, finals MVP in 2011, 75th anniversary team. And his one-legged fadeaway jumper is recognized as one of the most unstoppable moves in NBA history. It's right up there with Kareem's skyhook, Wilt Chamberlain's finger roll, and Allen Iverson's crossover. Well said there, Bruce. Will be? Uh, I don't know of a bigger, uh, a better shooter from the perimeter for a big man than, than Dirk. I mean, there's just nobody like him. Uh, his ability to hit the three-pointer. Uh, he was part of that uh, European style where uh, playing outside in became the the way of, you know, the fashion way of the NBA. And Dirk was leading the way because you never saw a player to do it like he like he did it, and to do it from beginning to end, he really is a. We we put Steph Curry as one of those guys that changed the game because of his ability to shoot from the perimeter and the way he did it. Dirk is the same way. Dirk Dirk uh, made it fashionable to be a perimeter, be a big guy and shoot from the perimeter because there was, like I said, there was nobody that did it. 
Uh, Bruce mentioned all the accolades, and it's a, it's a laundry list of accomplishments for him. He is one of those players that we, we've been talking the international theme, this whole uh, Hall of Fame thing. He's one of those guys that you can drop the international, although we put that label on all the guys, including Dirk. He's just one of the greatest, period. I mean, when yep. you talk about great power forward, Tim Duncan does not get mentioned being from the Virgin Islands or whatever. He's just mentioned as one of the great power forwards. Hakeem Olajuwon, we don't think of him anymore as being from uh, Nigeria. He's, he's one of the great centers of all time. This is where Dirk is. Dirk is in that list. We don't think of him as an international player, although we, you know, we did and we mentioned it. He's just one of the greatest, period. He revolutionized the, game, the sport. There's very few you can say revolutionize the sport, and he's one of them. I totally agree with you, World B. I think, obviously, just to his impact on the game, kind of stretching it out to the perimeter as a big man, uh, obviously had a huge impact throughout uh, the 2000s with his, uh, his shooting ability, greatest shooter of all time. I don't care what Anthony or Carl Anthony Towns has to say about that. Um, we'll never be on the level of, of Dirk Nowinski. I think that's pretty crazy. One one thing I want to throw at you before we get to the last and final NBA name here. Do you guys remember which team originally drafted Dirk Nowinski? Milwaukee Bucks. That is correct. And who did you get traded for? Robert Tractor Trailer. Tractor Trailer. Yeah. One of the all-time nicknames. That will, he may be on one of our lists down the road. Yeah. Who was so, the Bucks general manager back then, Ross? I believe it was uh, Ernie Grunfeld. I think it was Ernie Grunfeld. Yeah. Oh, Ernie. Yeah. yeah. Wish he he wishes he could have had a do over on that one. I'm not sure if he was. I think that he was the GM back then, but I. Yeah, I think so. But uh, Dirk, I, I should mention here, while being you know drafted by the Bucks and immediately traded on draft night to the Mavericks, is the only player on this list that spent his entire career with one team. So he's one of the rare rarities in that regard. But. Uh, no rarer than the next guy that we're going to talk about here, Bruce. And I know that you would love to have the privilege to be the first to discuss Greg Popovich. All right. I, I might need a little extra time for this oh, one, goodness. but uh, I think we're going <laughs> to. <laughs> well, listen, he is the undisputed king of San Antonio, period. End of discussion. He is a god in San Antonio. And not only that, but what an interesting and fascinating personal story this guy has prior to becoming an NBA legend. I mean, he grew up in East Chicago, Indiana, which is about 18 miles from Chicago, kind of right on Lake Michigan, uh, northwestern sliver of Indiana. Went to the Air Force Academy, was the leading scorer, captain of their basketball team, studied the old Soviet Union, and was considering going into the CIA, but ended up not going into the CIA. But he was with the... uh, U.S. Armed Forces basketball team, which he also captained. So he traveled all over Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. He's part of the Larry Brown coaching tree. Larry hired him as an assistant in San Antonio after having hired him as an unpaid assistant at Kansas when Larry was still there. Um, Pop then, when when Larry Brown got fired from the Spurs in 88, uh, he went to uh, Golden State as Don Nelson's assistant, and he spent a couple of years there, then came back to San Antonio in 94 as the general manager and head of basketball operations. So he was like, you know, the basketball boss there. Uh, he's been there ever since. Uh, after they, he fired coach Bob Hill after a three and 15 start in 96, 97, and became coach pop and has since become the winningest coach in NBA history. 
five NBA titles, just signed a five-year, $80 million million contract extension at the age of 74, okay? So he may just put that NBA coaching victory record so far ahead of the field that he may never be caught. The only active coach within like 400 wins of him is Rick Carlisle. And Rick is a little bit younger, but Pop's got that five-year deal now. So, I mean, I don't know that Rick's catching him. Uh, Shout out to Rick. And as Doug McDermott told us a couple weeks ago when he was on this show, with the recent drafting of Victor Wenbanyama with the number one overall pick, uh, he is the perfect coach for this young guy, you know, also from France. Uh, A lot of French players have been key guys in San Antonio, besides Tony Parker, Boris Diaw being another. So uh, Pop is an old dude, but he's not an out-of-date dude. He's yeah. right up on everything right now. He's as current and fresh as can be. And a, and a sign to employers out there that you should not age out people that are getting on the older side. <laughs> That's right. Worldly, what, what do you got on Coach Pop? Well, here's a list of coaches who have won five or more NBA titles. Phil Jackson, Red Arbeck, Pat Riley, John Kundla from early days of the NBA, and Pop. I mean, it's, you know... There's not much more you can say about a guy who has the most wins and is among the leaders in NBA titles. He uh, he is a personification of ex- consistent excellence, the way Jerry Sloan was for the longest time with the Utah Jazz, except Greg uh, was able to pull out championship after championship. You know, it, the one thing I've always you know enjoyed about Pop is when you get to be uh, the debate has always been. Phil Jackson or Red Arback in terms of greatest coach of NBA coach of all time. And then they, you, you see all the arguments. Well, chopping them down. Well, Red had all the players. Well, Phil never won without Jordan or Shaq or Kobe. And that doesn't seem to be a task when it comes to uh, pop, even though, you, you know, you need players to win and pop had plenty of them and they're, you know, in the hall of fame tonight and or uh, this weekend and uh, in previous inductions so he's had the players but he doesn't get labeled as that he just has a consistent excellence about him and you know i wish one of his titles didn't come at the expense of my knicks there the first one in 99 but that's the way it goes uh but yeah consistent excellence winning championships i don't know what more you want as a coach and yeah he's 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 not done yet certainly not done yet he's got a road ahead of him to develop uh Victor Wembanyama, but uh, it's been a heck of a ride for Coach Pop. And uh, I think as much as you mentioned uh, Coach Pop coming from Larry Brown's coaching tree, I think it's quite impressive to look at the coaching tree he has himself, especially amongst the NBA today. Uh, you got coaches like Mike Budenholzer, had the best record in the NBA last year, won a championship for the Milwaukee Bucks for the first time since 1971. And you look at even younger coaches in the league. Let's go right to the youngest. Will Hardy of the Utah Jazz comes from the Spurs pedigree, starting in the video room there. Had quite an impressive season. No one really expected from the Utah Jazz as a young up-and-coming coach. And, uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. And, you know, that all stems back from Coach Pop and what he taught and developed those young coaches uh, throughout uh, their time within his staff. So much congratulations go out to Coach Pop. And, uh can, be I a add a couple, of, can I add a yeah. couple more things before we move on? Uh, sure. Mike Brown is from his coaching tree. Yep. Uh, and Steve Kerr is from his coaching tree, although Steve was with him as a player. But one of the things that Pop 
is sort of notorious for is how prickly he's always been with the media. Okay. <laughs> uh, especially on those national TV games where he has to do the interview in between quarters. But you, you'll remember he used to bust the late Craig Sager's balls on TNT during those interviews. He was, he was like brutal, but he showed real warmth towards Craig as Sager battled cancer in his final months, but just kept working. Uh, it was really, a, a, it showed a side of pop the way he embraced him. He hugged him. I think he even kissed him on the air um, one time showing that, you know, yeah, he can be a, you know, a-hole at times, but he's also got a, a, a very, you know, warmth about him. And McDermott talked a little bit about he that did, yeah. uh, when he was on with us too, about how after a really tough loss, he'd tell the guys, you know what? Take tomorrow off, you know, be with your families, whatever. Very important. Uh, and I got one quick story about a f- really good friend of mine who had a Greg Popovich interaction. My really good friend, Cassidy Hubbard, had a Spurs game on Christmas Day 2015 when she did her very first sideline assignment for ESPN. Okay. And she came up with a great way to handle Pop. It was It was amazing. Okay. Those interviews are always two questions long, right? That's what the league says. You got two questions and they generally run for about a minute and then you're out. So Cass is always well prepared. She could have asked him five questions and, but you know, so she asks him one question and then she says to him, coach, as a Christmas present, there's no second question. (laughs) So pop's response was, and I quote, I think that's just lovely. Thank you very much. (laughs) Cassidy has that way about her. You know, she could make anybody become her instant friend. She's just one of those people. That's good stuff right there. And speaking of good stuff, we got more good stuff coming up in the second half, but we've reached the halftime buzzer. So we'll take a quick break and come back with you for the second half. And we're back with the start of our second half and it's a long overdue mailbag episode fellas the letters have started to pile up in the mailbox so i thought we'd answer a couple here tonight live on the show and uh first question comes in from daniel daniel wants to know will the lack of a true superstar hurt team usa in the fiba tournament who wants to start i'll go if you want let's go bruce i don't agree that there's no superstar on team usa (laughs) i would like to point out that anthony edwards fits into that category and this team has lots of outstanding backcourt talent with jalen brunson tyrese halliburton and edwards steve kerr also has brandon ingram jaron jackson jr and mikhail bridges who are all star caliber players so i disagree with uh, uh our our listeners premise there I would tend to agree, too. I think the, the way I look at it is they don't quite have a true superstar just yet, but they certainly have rising ones with the likes of Anthony Edwards, Tyrese Halliburton, and even Paolo Bonchero. Uh, but what I like about this team is they got a, a ton of team players. And as we know, the FIBA tournament, the European style play is all about team. And so I think this team with a lot of guys that know how to gel well, you know, they're, they're filled with guys that understand their role excel in playing those those current roles and i think they did a good job assembling this team and let's also remember that you can knock the the ball off the rim i can't wait to watch walker kessler and jaron jackson around the rim swatting balls that are rolling around the rim defensively so that should be a lot of fun there as well so looking forward to that and uh, certainly thank daniel for the question 
Uh, next question comes in from James, and James asks, which team confuses you the most when you look at their upcoming season? Will be? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of teams you could probably point to that that have a, that are head scratchers entering this season. Uh, for me, it's the Celtics, to be honest with you. Um, and it's because of what they did in the offseason. It doesn't mean they're going to struggle or anything, but they took what you know we all agree was a re- you know, they had a really good season at the end of the day last season. They didn't get to the finals. They uh, you know got to the conference finals, fell behind, and almost made a miracle comeback. And then they got rid of Marcus Smart. One of the one of the big things about the Celtics was their defense. They were one of the best all around teams in the league, offensively and defensively. Well, it feels like they got rid of one of those key elements in defense when they uh, let Marcus Smart go, and they decided, you know, we talked about before, they're all in on offense. When they bring in uh, KP and Kristaps uh, Porzingis to go along with Tatum, to go along with Brown, and it's really a a gamble of sorts to, to see if that can elevate them to to a championship. This is a team that has, you know, supposed to win championships. They're one of the three contenders, top three contenders for a title and the moves they made in the off season, it, you know, they could end up being in the finals. They're, you know, we talked about it uh, last week and the week before they could be in the finals. It's just confusing to me way they, the way they did it. And I'm assuming the Joe Missoula, uh, you know, watches on, you know, throughout the season beginning with game one after the way he got treated during the playoffs. So uh, that's the team for me that I'm really confused about. I am utterly and completely confused by what's going on with the Chicago Bulls. I mean, after finishing last season at 40 and 42, the definition of generic and losing to Miami in their second play-in game, their big offseason move was signing free agent Javon Carter. Okay, I know Ross is a big fan of Javon Carter, but the guy averaged eight a game for the Bucks last season. They re-signed center Nick Vucevic, who turns 33 in October, to a three-year $60 million deal, all right? Don't get me wrong. Nick's a very solid offensive player, but it's unlikely that his best basketball is still in front of him, okay? Zach Levine has four years and $174 million left on his deal, but his teams have only made the playoffs once in his nine NBA seasons, okay? Uh, So he's never really impacted winning. So this team is stuck in second gear as far as I'm concerned, and I have no idea uh, how they're going to improve next year running it back with basically that crew plus Javon Carter. I would agree with you there, Bruce. And uh, for my team, I've got the Toronto Raptors as the most confusing team. They confused me all of last year with their performance, and they seem set to do it all over again this year. They added Dennis Schroeder and Grady Dick via the draft. But all else remains the same outside of losing their team leader and Fred Van Fleet. And speaking of leadership, they moved on from Nick Nurse and hired a first-time head coach. So really don't know what to expect from these guys. They just got me all tangled up and confused on where they're headed and what could be next season in Toronto. Great question there, James. want to thank you for that. Another question from another James here. And James asks, which coaches are on the hot seat for next season? Bruce? I don't think it's a very long list, and I expect to see a lot of stability this season. But I would say that Chris Finch in Minnesota needs the Wolves to get off to a good start. Uh, They won 42 games last year after winning 46 the year before, okay? There's a pretty good amount of talent on that team with the aforementioned Anthony Edwards, Carl Anthony Towns, Rudy Gobert, 
veteran point guard Mike Conley, and super sub Naz Reed. So if they stumble out of the gate, I would say that Finch's seat could heat up quickly. And a couple other coaches I'd kind of keep half an eye on are Taylor Jenkins in Memphis and Willie Green in New Orleans. All right, World B? Uh, I put um, my top five in no particular order. I ruled out Joe Missoula because I think he's, yeah, after what happened last uh, postseason, he's going to be on the hot seat from day one. So he's in another category, <laughs> I think. Uh, but I think uh, Bruce's team there, just uh, Billy Donovan is going to be one of those teams. And I'm not saying they deserve to be on this uh, list, but that's just how it is. Uh, I, seen, I think Steve Clifford of the Hornets, uh, new ownership. I'm a big Steve Clifford fan, but second time around, new ownership coming in. Uh, they could be looking to make a move. I, the Hornets do not look like a team that's going to be on the rise, unfortunately, for me. Uh, I think uh, Teron Liu of the Clippers is who I think is one of the best in the league, could be on the on that list if they don't uh, get off to a better start and don't really contend. I think Chris Finch is also on that list. I think uh, Chauncey Billups of the Blazers, no fault of his own necessarily, but they his two seasons, they've struggled, and they've struggled defensively, which is supposed to be his forte, and they're a team in franchise in disarray right now with Damian Lillard hanging overhead. So I think, for me, those are the five that I would keep an eye on. Uh, I do believe, I do agree with Bruce, too, about uh, Willie Green in New Orleans, and I'm not necessarily sold on uh, uh, Taylor Jenkins in Memphis, but... because of the whole John Moran situation and him being out. But we've seen crazier things happen than that. Yeah, some interesting names there. Um, the only guy I would add to this list that may come as a little bit of a surprise, but there was some chatter at the end of last year uh, going on. J.B. Bickerstaff with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, you know, the team has high expectations. They have a high caliber roster and they didn't reach the levels they hoped to in last year's playoffs. So if things don't go well this year, I could see them making a move with just how aggressive they've been trying to get this roster uh, into shape and give him all the tools he needs. So I, I would add him to our list too, but I think we have a pretty solid list there. So uh, James, thanks for the question. And lastly, Jamie asks, which team do you think can make a playoff jump this year? Will be? Uh, well, I was assuming this question was teams that didn't make the playoffs in the season that could make. Yep. Okay. Uh, I have two I put in there real quick. I think the Dallas Mavericks, uh, we talked about the dysfunction in, in uh, since last season when they picked up Kyrie. But the fact remains, they have two of the best playmakers in the league in Luka and Kyrie. Uh, I think that's enough to get them in the playoffs and make it, you know, whether, whether or not they actually contend, that's probably – not going to happen. It could happen, but I think they're at least a playoff team this uh, this coming season. And in the East, I think the Pacers are. They were the last team not to not get the play in field, but I think you know they have a uh, potential superstar in Tyrese Halliburton, who's on Team USA here in the FIBA World Cup. Uh, they picked up Bruce Brown. They picked up Obi Toppin, who's going to have some uh, uh, incentive to prove the Knicks wrong. And they still have Miles Turner, who's a solid interior play, and they have. You know, world-class coaching, Rick Carlisle. So I think those those are two teams that should make a playoff push uh, this coming season for me. Bruce? I expect Oklahoma City to advance into the playoffs after making the play-in tournament uh, last season. It's a young team led by Shea Gilgis-Alexander that overachieved last season. Josh Giddy is a budding star. And J-A-L-E-N 
Williams, as opposed to the other Jalen Williams, had a solid rookie season, averaging 14 points on 52% shooting. Now add in seven-footer Chet Holmgren, the number two overall pick in the 2022 draft, who played really well in the summer league after missing his rookie year with a foot injury. If he's healthy and continues to grow, I see this team winning 45 to 48 games and possibly even competing for a number five or number six seed. And I'm also not sleeping on Houston, but I know we're running a little short on time, so maybe I'll save that for another show. All right. Can't wait to hear that one. I don't disagree, but I'd like to hear more. As for my team, I've got the Indiana Pacers. I think they're ready to rise this year. They had a tremendous offseason, got some veteran experience in Bruce Brown. Uh, if they can remain healthy this year, I think we'll see them in the playoffs. I think they might have made the play-in last year had they not had some injuries, key injuries down the stretch there. So keep an eye on them. So, Jamie, thank you for the question there. And that is tonight's edition of the Mailbag. But please feel free to go ahead and comment on YouTube or uh Tweet at us, and we'd love to answer any questions that you guys have at any time. So our mailbag is always open. And now for the fourth quarter, let's go ahead and have some fun with some NBA nickname discussions. And, uh, you know, Bruce, I'll let you kind of take over what we're going to do here tonight with our NBA nicknames. Ross and World B, I heard a recent segment on Sirius XM NBA Radio, which is one of my favorite channels to listen to, shockingly, <laughs> uh, on their favorite nicknames. Rick Kamala and Antonio Daniels did it one afternoon, and it was it was just so much fun. And since we accept good ideas from wherever they might occur, consider this theft of their idea a high compliment, okay? Um, so I have, you know, we can count them down five through one. But I wanted to give a couple of honorable mentions first. Honorable mention, Daryl Dawkins, Chocolate Thunder. Yeah. Awesome nickname. Awesome. Mr. Clutch, Jerry West, who played, I think, for West Virginia in college. I'm not sure. And then Pistol Pete Maravich. Ooh. He was just a gunner, Pistol Pete. So I don't know. Do we want to go down five through one? Do we want to mix it up a little bit and go back and forth? How do you want to do this, Roster, the point guard here? Yeah, let's go ahead and just kind of mix it up a bit and kind of just uh, go with the one you want to talk about real briefly. Keep it quick here as we are running low on time. And uh, I'll go ahead and start us off. I I like the worm for uh, Dennis Rodman. I mean, you look at a worm, you know, it's a little of a it's a weird animal. Right. And uh, they're squiggly. And that's who he was on the basketball. He was a weird character as a player and person, as we all know. But also just on the court, you know, he he get down and dirty in the dirt like a worm, squiggling around, got a ton of rebound, best rebounder of all time, in my opinion. I think just when you when you put together his size and what he was doing out there on the basketball court, the worm just is a perfect nickname for Dennis Rodman. World B? Uh, well, it, I went uh, five through one, so I, I, okay. I'll put going going at five. We'll start. I, uh, I had a tie. Ooh. Between and I, I probably would uh, credit uh, the former New York Post columnist Peter Vesey for these if I uh, am going to do it right. Uh, Bill Cartwright, who during his years with the Knicks was off injured, uh, had the unfortunate nickname of Medical Bill Cartwright. <laughs> and uh, Purvis Ellison, who when he was in college was never nervous, Purvis, but when he got <laughs> to the NBA with all his injuries, became out of service purpose. <laughs> so those, those are that I couldn't pick between the two. So that ended up being on number five on my list. Good choices. I can't wait to hear the, the ones that beat those Bruce. 
My number five is Akeem the Dream Elijahwan. Okay, the rhyme is sublime, and visions of his dream shake still haunt David Robinson's dreams. Nice. I see what you did there. <laughs> My next one, I'm going to go with Big Shot Bob. Hated the guy. He killed me time after time in the playoffs, whether it was with the Spurs, whether it was with the Lakers. Big Shot Bob, though, is just such a perfect way to kind of sum up Robert Ory's career. It's simple. It's to the point, And that's exactly what he would do down the stretch when he got a shot late in the clock. He was simple and to the point and typically knocked him down. So can't hate on him too much. Perfect nickname. Will be your next. Uh, my number four all-time nick, my favorite nickname is one of my favorite people I've ever come across during my years at ESPN, Fred Mad Dog Carter. Oh. Uh, he was a terrific. He had to claim the fame of being the leading scorer on the, what was then the worst team in NBA history, the 72, uh, 72 73, 76er squad. Uh, he was – nobody taught me more – about a particular sport in any level than Fred Carter, Mad Dog Carter, taught me about the NBA and all the years I spent as a researcher at the NBA Tonight sitting with him during the week, watching games and listening to him talk and break down the game. So Fred, yeah, Mad Dog Carter, who was a teammate of Earl Monroe in the team that made the finals in 1970, lost to the uh, Milwaukee Bucks, I believe. Uh, so he is he's my number four guy. All right. My number four is Vinny the Microwave Johnson. Ooh. He was given his nickname by Danny Ainge because of the way he could come off the bench and heat up immediately. <laughs> Love that. My next one is uh, a guy that you are familiar with here on a recent show, The Matrix, Sean Marion. Did a little bit of everything. Uh, was superhero-like for the Phoenix Suns for many years, taking any assignment on that he needed to in order to help the team win. The Matrix, one of my favorite players of all time, and I uh, think it sums him up perfectly. Will be? Yeah, uh, for purposes of time here, I know we're running a little little tight here. I'll just go three, two, one, and make it really quick. Okay. Uh, number three is Mr. Clutch, as you mentioned, Jerry West, one of the all-time greats. Uh, and, yeah, by the way, he did go to West Virginia. Uh, number two is uh, – Maybe the, if it wasn't for number one here, which is obvious, uh, number two is Dr. J. Julius Irving, one of the greatest nicknames of all time. It's just, it's doctor. Anytime your name is, you have Dr. J before, you know, they know you more than Julius, uh, you're doing pretty good. Yeah. And I, I don't even, can't understand how I have to give number one, but it's the all-time greatest nickname is World B. Free, Lloyd Free, nice. who legally <laughs> changed his name to World B. Without him, there'd be no uh, Twitter handle, no nickname for me. So uh, I'm selfish. I'm thinking of myself in this one. But, yeah, that's the best one. Um, All right. I'll do what you did, World B. I'll go three, two, one, and kind of plow through them. Number three, Giannis, the Greek freak, Antetokounmpo. Normally using the word freak to describe someone is politically incorrect. But in Giannis's case, the nickname just fits so well. Number two, Robert Parrish, the chief. He got his nickname back in the 1970s in the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was a Jack Nicholson Academy Award performance. There was a Native American character named Chief Bromden, who was very tall and always wore a stoic expression on his face. And that was the chief. And then number one, the greatest nickname in NBA history, Irvin Magic Johnson. If you ask anyone under the age of 30 what Magic's given name is, 
Very few would know him as Irvin, but everybody knows who Magic is. Well said there. You kind of stole a few of mine there, but I did have backup. So at number three, I got to go with another favorite of mine, Vince Carter, half man, half amazing. I mean, what he did in the air was just incredible and uh, sums it up nicely there. Uh, Number two for me has to be King James. He's been the king of this era. Um, You know, obviously some would say he's the best player of all time. I would say he's the most talented player of all time based on all his accomplishments in the NBA. And last but not least, I would drop my mic because this is a mic drop moment here. Air Jordan. I mean, come on. I mean, Michael Jordan, Air Jordan. They recently just had the uh, the film that came up on the Air Jordan shoe. Not sure if you guys have saw that, but really cool film there. And uh, just quite incredible what he's done, not just on the court, obviously, as the best player of all time, in my opinion, but also off the court with that Air Jordan shoe. I mean, uh, the profits are unbelievable when you start to see all the results on that. But uh, that was a lot of fun, guys, and uh, hopefully – all of you enjoyed that as well. If you have a favorite nickname that we maybe not didn't mention on tonight's show, feel free to drop it in the comments. We'd love to see it. And uh, with that, that will do it for this edition of the 48 Minutes Podcast on Believe, presented by Bet Online. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back with you next week to be sure you're up to date in 48 on all things around the association. Take care, everybody. <laughs>